Good morning, everyone. Certainly a pleasure to uh, fellowship together and to sing praises to our Lord and just praise him that he is praiseworthy and thanks to the team for that and what a blessing. A couple of announcements. There is a new roster, a draft roster that's been put out. Uh, so please, if you have si signed up for something, because the things that we do are volunteer-based, uh, just check it out and see that it's correct. If there's any issues with it. And also, there's still room to volunteer. So feel free to uh, consider that as well. We will be having a Christmas Day service at 9 a.m. So that's Saturday, I believe. So Saturday, 9 a.m., and it'll be a shortened service, and uh, the kids, everyone will just be in here together. And that's a great uh, time to celebrate our Savior because He is the reason we gather. He's the reason we celebrate Christmas. So what a sweet time. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your goodness and that you are glorious, holy, awesome, perfect in every way. And we delight to come to you. We delight to hear you speak. And thank you that you desire to hear our voice, that you, you in, that, uh, in Song of Solomon, the beloved says, come away, my love, come away. And I pray that we would hear your voice as you leap to speak to us across the hills, that we would bow our hearts before you in worship. We would utter forth your praises now and forever and delight to do your will, trusting you, believing in you, hoping in that future that you have promised, knowing that it is secure in Christ. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for all the gifts you give us and how you daily load us with benefits. I pray we'd appreciate everyone and praise you for you and your goodness to us all. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Job chapter 27 today. Looking forward to this. The Lord has so much riches in his word for us. And it's so good when we open his word to have an open mind and a soft heart to receive what God would say. Knowledge has a way of making us proud and opinionated and really stubborn in our view because we know something. And uh, the wisest among us will realize the more we know how little we know. That really, there's so much more to know. We're always learning, and may we come to the truth that is in Christ. We see this in the scriptures, too, that in the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he didn't want them to be ignorant of the examples that God had given in the scriptures. And, and they had the scriptures, they knew the history, but he's like, I don't want you to be ignorant that this was written for your learning, that you would learn from their example, that God brought the Hebrews out of bondage in Egypt Yet he judged them for their sins. They were God's people, but because they were in sin for their lust and idolatry and fornication, complaining and murmuring, Paul says all of those specifically, it led to their demise. Paul concluded in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The Corinthians needed a reality check uh, because they imagine themselves to be wise and gifted and theologically sound and super spiritual when they were just as sinful as the Hebrews who perished in the wilderness. So he's like, guys, don't miss the lesson. Know that the way we walk matters. In Revelation chapter 3, the church in Laodicea, they needed a wake-up call. They needed a reality check because they thought that they were full and self-sufficient and in need of nothing and Jesus said, 
when you're naked and poor and blind and miserable. They're like, we have everything. We have everything we need. But they needed to look to Jesus, who was standing at the door and knocking. He's like, will you let me in? In Job 27, we pick up where he has now climbed up onto his soapbox to give his friends a dose of reality because he's refuted their arguments. He's, he's shown their accusations to be false against him. And his, his response to his friends goes from chapters 26 to 31. And he talks of the judgment of the wicked, the wisdom of God, how he wished he could go back to previous days, like better days, happier times. And we'll get through some of that today. But his reality check was coming because Job was in this moment a bit self-sufficient, a bit self-confident. He had suffered great loss and he was mourning and sorrowful, but he wasn't yet broken. He was still sure of himself. And we'll see that today. The sun that melts ice cream, it can harden clay. And when that fiery trial comes for some people, it will melt their hearts and brokenness. Others, it will harden them. So how would Job respond? How do we respond when the trials come? Are we more set in our ways or do we yield to the leading of the spirit? And there's nothing easier really than finding fault with people, right? Because we all have faults. It's not hard to find faults with people in the Bible, even godly people. The hard thing is acknowledging and owning our own sin and realizing that we have a need to repent. We have a need to trust. We have a need to change. And the Lord is faithful and patient with us to show us that reality. We all, because we all sleep, I, I think most of you slept some last night. Maybe it wasn't the best night's sleep or the night before, maybe during the day you had a snooze. But because we all can sleep, we all need a wake-up call sometimes. We need a wake-up call. And Job's was coming and may we wake up to the wisdom that's in God. Job 27, verse 1. Moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. Job's friends had come to comfort him and they assumed that his suffering was because of his sin. Yet Job held fast to his integrity. He kept on trusting God and he placed his faith in him. And all along, God, Job asserted that God was responsible for what had befallen him. However, uh, he had no explanation why. He couldn't understand or answer like, well, why has God had this happen? I don't know. I don't know why God has allowed me to suffer so much. And his friends assumed Job had sinned. And it seems Job also made an assumption. He assumed because his friends were wrong and he could refute them that he was right. And that we don't have to be like an expert in logic to know that that's a fallacious thinking. Just the fact that they're wrong means you're right. Because if all of his three friends were wrong, couldn't Job also be wrong in some way? Sure. So just to assume he was right, that was a mistake. And even if you know what's right, does it mean that you're doing what's right? 
Even if you say the right things, isn't it possible to say it with the wrong motive? God's looking at the heart. The words of Job, there's, there's a, a, a flavor of pride here. He's like, God has taken away my justice. God has made my soul bitter. And he speaks primarily focusing on himself. I will not let go of my integrity, my righteousness. Like he's, he's promoting himself. He's confident in his ability. And he's, he's like, I am going to see this through. I am going to keep following God, which is a good mentality. It's a good outlook. But if we're trusting ourselves that there's strength and resources in us to do what only God can do, then we're trusting in a shifting, sinking sand. And he speaks of righteousness really as his own, my righteousness. I will not let my heart reproach me, like to defy or scorn me. I'm not even listening to that. I I am stubborn in knowing what's right, and I'm going to keep doing it. He's very opinionated. And he's like, I'm not going to hear anything contrary to that. I'm not going to receive it. In the heat of the moment, he's really in this defensive posture. He's like kind of a cornered animal that's just like, all right, who's coming at me? Kind of fierce, defensive. Um, I'm going to protect myself. And, and we can totally identify with that. We feel ganged up with one person opposes us. And he has three people who have come. And they're hammering him about how wrong he is, but he really isn't. And, and he can justify himself. Instead of asserting himself, though, he would have been better to look to the Lord through whom his righteousness came by faith. As James 4, 15 and 16 instructs those who say what they will do. It says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We have as believers great hope in God that he can bring sweetness out of the most bitter trial And he is gracious and merciful. Job continues in verse seven. May my enemy be like the wicked and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he may gain much if God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the almighty? Will he always call on God? I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the almighty I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? Job wanted those who attacked him and judged him to be uh, judged and condemned like the wicked. He wanted to see all his enemies overthrown in a moment. Everything that was against him just to be reversed. Uh, Historically, God's people rejoice when their enemies were overthrown. I mean, if you had an enemy who was out for your life and then they were no more, you would celebrate that, right? Um, Moses and the people, when the Egyptian army was pursuing them and they, the sea, the Red Sea came back upon them and drowned them, they sang and danced on the shore. They said, you know, the horse and rider God has thrown into the sea. They rejoiced in God's salvation. Uh, David, when he came into the city, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. You think of Goliath and he had that massive sword and, and spear and how many people his, he, he ended their lives. And when he was overthrown, when he was dead and his sword could no longer devour, the people rejoiced like this great enemy has been overthrown. And that's what Job desired. He wanted that rest and security and safety of knowing the enemy is no more. Those who oppose me have been silenced forever. And it's true. The wicked, the up, the unrighteous, the hypocrite, they are all in a sinking ship without hope. 
And Job's been very clear throughout his whole discourse that the hypocrite, the, the wicked, they will be judged by God. A hypocrite is one who puts on a mask. It's someone that presents themselves falsely, like the Pharisees who claim to love God and follow him, but um, at the same time, we're plotting Jesus' crucifixion. A hypocrite, you can gain much in, re in regards to the world and the riches, but there's no hope in heaven unless you're born again. And Job asks, will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? God is gracious to hear sinners, but we see even with God's people that when they departed from him and served idols, there was a point in Judges where God said, go to those idols that you've chosen. You've forsaken me. You've chosen these idols. I'm going to let those idols that you've chosen save you and see how well that turns out. In Judges 10, 14, God said, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. Would they deliver them? No. They wouldn't. And God, in his grace, did uh, deliver his people in time. Later in the day of Isaiah, God spoke through the prophet of the people's wickedness and their need to repent of their idolatry. Instead of returning to the Lord, they actually doubled down on their idolatry. And they said, you know, life was so much better when we followed the idols and worshiped the queen of heaven. We're going back to her instead of going back to God. And so he led them into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. How foolish it is to depart from faith in God who hears us, who saves us. And Job says, I'm going to teach you guys about the Almighty God because you're just doing nonsense right now. If you really knew God, how are you behaving this way? Verse 13, this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword and his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him shall be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth which a watchman makes. The rich man will lie down but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes and he is no more. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately from its power. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. Job and his friends were in agreement on one point that God will judge the wicked. No matter how many possessions you have or power you accumulate or strength or knowledge or things that you uh, I guess your fame, God will bring that person down to the grave. Think about this heritage, this inheritance that Job talks about. We see God, after the children of Israel were brought into the land of Canaan, that he gave to each tribe by lot and each family an inheritance that would pass down from generation to generation. The Levites didn't receive a portion of land because God was their inheritance. The fathers got to choose to whom the birthright and the inheritance would pass. Remember Abraham, he gave Isaac the inheritance, even though Ishmael was born first. He chose, God had said, that's of Isaac your seed shall be called. And so he chose to give the inheritance and the birthright to Isaac. David, he chose which one of his sons would be king after him. It wasn't Absalom's choice. It was David's choice, and he chose Solomon because God loved him. 
So beneficiaries, the one who receives, they're not, they don't get to choose what they're given, right? It's the benefactor who gets to choose. God is the almighty benefactor. He has a portion and a heritage set apart for the wicked, whether they like it or not. That's what they will receive. It's not, it's whether they approve of it isn't the question. And whether they'll receive it isn't the question. God will give it to them. So while consequences for sin could be experienced in this life, it's not a question of if, but when that judgment will come. Job says, if the, the heritage of the wicked is, if their children multiply, it's for the sword, the end of the wealthy, those who, you know, gather designer handbags and designer clothes and riches. It's all going to pass to someone else. You can't keep it with you. We have an example of such a man, a very wealthy man in Na- of Nabal, named Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. If you remember, David and his men, they had protected the shepherds of Nabal they were both of the tribe of Judah and it was a good day. It was a day of abundance and celebration when you would be shearing the sheep. And so David sent some men. It was like a good time. Like if, if we know that he's got these huge flocks, we know he's got the money to give to us or the help. So he said, could you give us some food for the, the service that we rendered to you? And Nabal, he answered them roughly. He's like, who is the son of Jesse? Why should I help him? Should I give him my meat and my water and my wool? No, I'm not going to do that. So Nabal's drinking himself drunk. David is putting on his sword to go kill Nabal. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, intervenes. And she saddles up a couple of animals and loads them with supplies and goes and intercepts David. And she sways him to not avenge himself. And David blessed her and blessed the Lord for preventing a disaster because it would have been so foolish for David to do that. The next day, when uh, Nabal's still nursing a hangover, he got the word about what happened, how he had this near brush with death. It says his heart became as a stone and 10 days later, God struck him and he died. So he has this heart attack. He goes into a coma and then he, he dies. His wealth all passed to others. His wife, who had a heart of gold, became David's wife. Job said the wicked men like Nabal, they were like moths, swatted away. A flood, a storm, a wind, it blows them away, and they're no more, never to be found again. And the heritage of the hypocrite, really, it's inescapable terror forever. His pleas for mercy will not be answered. Matthew Henry, he put it like this. Death to a godly man is like a fair gale of wind to convey him to the heavenly country. But the wicked man is miserable after death. His soul falls under the just indignation of God. Those who will not be persuaded now to fly to the arms of divine grace, which are stretched out to receive them, will not be able to flee from the arms of divine wrath. Paul shared the gospel in Acts 26, 28 with Agrippa. And he said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost persuaded seems pretty close, but it is infinitely short of what God requires. What will it take to persuade us to follow Jesus? Persuade us to trust him, to keep following him, to repent 
In Luke 16, Jesus spoke to covetous Pharisees. Now remember the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders. They had these white robes with those blue tassels and they were God-fearing, law-abiding men of God. And they were looked up to in the community. He spoke with covetous Pharisees. They said that scorned and ridiculed him. Because these religious leaders, they, like many, saw wealth as a sign of God's favor. And it was a primary indication of his blessing and a reward for their good deeds. And Jesus says this in Luke 16, 15. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus went on then to speak of a rich man. And Lazarus, so the rich man, he ate well every day. And this beggar Lazarus was brought to his gate, hoping just to eat some scraps that fell from his table. Like he couldn't even walk there himself. He had to be laid there and he's just hoping for food. And it says over the passage of time, they both died. And shockingly to these religious leaders, the rich man was being in torment and the poor man, he was being comforted. It took being tormented in the flames of hell for the rich man to care about others and seek to help them because he says, Hey, I've got five brothers send Lazarus back father Abraham so that he can warn them about this horrible place because I'm tormented in this flame. Jesus said in Luke 16, 29, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. It's crazy that it took being in torment to persuade the rich man that others needed to repent. Like even in that day, he didn't wreck, he wasn't like, oh, I'm so, I have so much guilt and I, I see now my need to repent. He's thinking about others. Others need to repent. But he was persuaded they needed to repent because of what he was going through. So what does it take us to persuade us of our need to repent of our sin? We're persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. We ought to hear and obey him. And praise the Lord that we have the way of salvation. We have the way of forgiveness by Christ. We have such a rich heritage Uh, An inheritance set aside for us in his presence forever in glory by his grace. Job continues in verse one. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. He breaks open a shaft away from people. In places forgotten by feet, they hang far away from men. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, from it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the source of sapphires, and it contains gold dust. That path no bird knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lions have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He put his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden He brings forth to light, but where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? 
Job starts considering how man mines all these precious things from the earth. Man knows how to discover them, to mine them, to get that ore, to extract it, to use it, and to value it. And so there's all this time and effort and money spent to search deep in the earth to find pay dirt. One of the deepest gold mines in Australia is the Gualia mine in Western Australia. Uh, I read that it's 1,700 meters deep, about, pretty deep. It takes about two hours driving 30 uh, kilometers an hour to take 55 tons of ore or rock from the bottom of the mine out to be processed. And in every ton, there's about seven grams of gold. It's a lot of work. Seven grams of gold, but they're doing it on a huge scale. It's a very profitable enterprise. And as they dig deeper, it gets warmer. And there's all that subterranean water and it makes it humid. It's like over 30 degrees down there. And so they've spent $80 million in 2019 to improve the ventilation so that people, they have cool air from the surface being pumped down into the bottom of this mine. So if you have a 12-hour shift, you can make about four trips in your truck to bring up rocks. It's a big job. It's amazing in Job's day, men are searching for gold, silver, and he's like, they're digging shafts and they're swinging to and fro. They're bringing the light into these dark places and they're finding this precious metal. And people have continued that pursuit with, without abatement, like larger and deeper shafts, 1,700, and that's not even the, the deepest in the world. All this effort being find this lucrative material. And he says, the earth that produces all these sapphires and gems, it, it produces grain. You bake that and eat it. It supplies nutrients for life. And he talks about falcons. A falcon has eyesight about eight times better than a human. And they fly and they have this perfect perspective, but they're not focused on gemstones or gold or silver dust, right? Silver ore. Lions, they stalk prey, these mighty beasts, but they're not going into the sand and trying to find some gold to store it in a little pile somewhere. They're just not, not switched onto that at all. Man's a different sort. Man's digging around in the dirt. He's going to find something that's precious. He's, he's going he's to make his fortune. Giant machines, drills, hammers, we're crushing rocks, we're extracting it, we're using chemicals, we're finding a way to get that ore. Digging tunnels and paths underground, damming up the stream to expose that sand where you could dig down because we've learned minerals and deposits that you, if you see this, gold could be around. They start digging there. So he says, we go through all this effort to find gold and sapphires, but what about Wisdom. Where's that vein of wisdom where we can dig around and find it? Where we can say, here it is. There is wisdom. We can't find it. The Bible speaks of wisdom personified in Proverbs 8, 10, and 11. Pro uh, this wisdom is calling out to anyone that will listen, saying, receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. You can describe wisdom as having understanding and skill for life. It's a good working definition of wisdom, understanding and skill for life. And everything that you might desire 
cannot compare with the value of God's wisdom. Verse 13, man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. And the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Anyone know the value of a, a gram of gold today? It's about 80 bucks for a gram. It's pretty valuable. The value fluctuates with the market. And there's a lot of precious things people value. An item doesn't have to have a great resale value for you to value it and say, that's my precious possession. Uh, people know how much is in their bank account at any time or how much is in their digital wallet. But Job says, they do not know the value of wisdom, nor is it found in the land of the living. The wisdom of God is completely foreign to man. You can dig a tunnel. You can look for it. You can't find it in the sea. You can't find it in the depths. Wisdom can't be purchased online at a shop. You can't uh, barter for it. It's not doled out by the gram or bought by the kilo. And even if wisdom could be found... No one could afford to buy it because it's more valuable than rubies or onyx or all these other things. And you think of, I looked up the most expensive items ever bought. It's like people have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on artwork and yachts and jewels and jets. But even if everyone on the earth pooled their resources together to buy wisdom, they could not buy a grain of it. Gold, crystal, onyx, sapphire, jewelry made from coral. You cannot compare with the price of wisdom. And Job, he's very well versed, isn't he, with these precious items. He's like, oh yeah, this from Ethiopia and these precious things. The gold of Ophir. He also knew that the wisdom of God far surpassed all of them. That there was no comparison between the wisdom of God and these valuable precious things. People are laboring to find the gold. They're digging deep. They're, they're risking their lives swinging to and fro in this dark shaft to try to get at some crystals. People are willing to guard their valuables with their lives. People are willing to risk their lives to steal those valuables. But of how much greater value is God's wisdom? Those relics that we consider priceless because they're one of a kind. It's a historical item. Uh, the the sculpture, sculptor or artist is long gone, so you can't replace it. It's irreplaceable. You cannot replace it. So it's like, this is a priceless. We cannot put a price on this. And God's wisdom is like that. It's beyond price. It's divine. It's infinite. It's eternal. So the question is, what do you value most? What do you value because wisdom is not of this world, the things we value most, we cannot keep. It used to be that people would say, you know, if your house was burning, what would you go back to get? This is one thing. You're like, well, if my kids are out, okay, I'd get the picture album. Now you can just store this to the cloud. So that's one reason not to run back into the burning house to get your pictures or the pet or something. But 
We know that people are the most precious, yet a day will come when we'll be parted from them. Traditional marriage vows affirm this. It says, until death do us part. Like there will be an end to our time together. Job showed forth God's wisdom when he was deprived of his children in a moment. And he said, you know, the Lord gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when things happen that are bad, we, we usually curse, right? You drop something and you might curse. You hear of a terrible tragedy. Job blessed the Lord because he realized that God is good. And he valued God more than his riches or his possessions or even his family. And that's wisdom to walk in. And that doesn't come from us. It comes from God to be able to rest there. Job verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, we have heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its way and he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. And to man, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Job established, there's no way to find gold, find God's wisdom. There's no way to, to barter for it or to procure it. Where does wisdom come from? Well, from God. God is the one who knows wisdom. He actually is wisdom for us. We read of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God's an invisible spirit. His wisdom is unseen, even destruction and death. They're like, I've heard about it. I've heard about wisdom, but they don't know what it is. It's in God. Wisdom comes from God who understands and knows it because he's the author of it. He's created the world by his wisdom. We see how he's constructed things. How he's created the wind, the sea, the rain, the thunder. He's fashioned the earth and the elements before there was a periodic table and man devised atomic symbols for each solid and gas. And God knew the melting point of gold and the boiling point of lead before we discovered what that was. He knew it because he made it. He constructed it to be just as it is, stable, enduring. And God has shown his wisdom in his creative power. He's declared it, he's prepared it, and he knew it all perfectly without fail. He knows all the countless things that we take for granted every day. And we don't even know how much we take for granted. Just what's happening in your own body. Somebody asks, what have you been up to? And we dumb it down to like a few random tasks. Like, oh, I went to the shops or went, took the dog for a walk or uh, I ate a sausage roll, right? That's what we did. But do you know what's been happening inside your body during that time, even while you were taking a nap? Your body is a constant churning hive of cellular activity that would just, it blows the mind to begin to consider. Even while you're sleeping, you have blood circulation and digestion and respiration and all these systems are working together and you don't even know it. Do you know that it's estimated a healthy adult has about 35 trillion blood cells at any time in their bodies? And in, any min in one second, 
your body is producing two to three million blood cells. Two to three million in a second. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. My to-do list is like too long. Three, maybe four. There's a million things happening a second just in that one thing. I read this article. It says most cells in the body will eventually die and need to be replaced. Fortunately, a healthy human body is capable of maintaining a precise balance between the number of cells produced and the number of cells that die. Fortunately, you know, fortune was a God that was worshiped, the God of luck or of good fortune. Fortune had nothing to do with this precise balance of the cells that are dying and then the cells that are replacing them so that you can continue living today for the next second. God in his wisdom created a healthy body to do this. By his wisdom, he devised it. He perfected it not through um, trial and error. There was no testing phase of creation. He just created and it was made and it was good right from the start. No mistakes. Perfection. That is wisdom from God. And God in his wisdom, he created this balance of cells. He created man, a physical being, and also a spiritual one. Into us, he breathed the living soul. And he has said to mankind, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To depart from evil is understanding. I was born in California. Um, because of my kids' ages, I was able to go to the gold fields in California, as well as the gold fields in New South Wales. Interestingly, both have had uh, historical gold rushes. Gold was discovered in Bathurst in, in 1851. I read that in one year, and this shocked me, in one year, 500,000 diggers came internationally to Australia to find gold. Like, wow, that is a lot of immigrants all at once. I mean, it was probably more than last year. Right? 500,000 just to find gold. They came from everywhere. They came from Europe. They came from the U.S. They came to find this gold because gold was discovered. All the gold dust, the flakes, and the nuggets, it cannot compare with the wisdom of God. They came to strike it rich. But how rich is the wisdom of God? The fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. And that fear, it's reverence, trust, humility with submission before him. Uh, could you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 16, verse 6? We're going to stay in Proverbs for just a few verses because there's a lot there about the fear of the Lord. So this fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom, walking in wisdom, heeding his ways. And you'll see the great impact of God's wisdom in our lives. Proverbs 16, verse 6, it says, that the fear of Lord keeps us from sin. It says, in mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. God's provided atonement according to his wisdom. And it's wisdom to uh, depart from evil. We seek wealth to improve our lives, but Jesus revealed that life doesn't consist in the things that you have. It's by faith in him that we have life. Turn to Proverbs 22, verse 4. Proverbs 22, 4 says, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Pretty awesome. 
riches, honor, and life. Not just in this world, but for eternity. You cannot buy life. You cannot purchase eternal life. We can come to God and have life through Christ. Proverbs 14, 26 and 27. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. There's not one person who went to those gold fields in Bathurst in 1851 who is alive today in the flesh. Not one. But all who have trusted in Christ, they live and they have glory and honor in the presence of God forever, who is wisdom for us. So the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And the impact of walking wisely, it's priceless. What a reward is ours who have received God's wisdom and walk in it. So the fear of the Lord, it's a way to life and salvation through faith in Jesus, who is wisdom for us, who keeps us from evil, who guides our steps in righteousness. Job had knowledge of God and his wisdom, but there was still a degree of self-sufficiency, self-confidence. He knew his friends were wrong and he was going to hold fast to his integrity, but in justifying himself, he found no place for repentance or humility at that moment. Job and his friends needed a wake-up call. They needed a reality check. God gives us wake-up calls through his word. Now, back in the day before mobile phones, if you went to a hotel or something, you would, I would call and say, could you wake, you know, send a wake-up call at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. or well, maybe 4 a.m. because we had to get up and go. And they would just set, they would basically ring your phone at that hour and wake you up. Now, when you have been awakened suddenly out of sleep, are you looking your best? No, you're probably a bit inco incoherent. You would be ashamed to probably walk into a job interview that very second. You'd be like, oh, a little confused, a little dazed, just not looking like yourself. Not the way you want to present yourself, right? Now, God gives us a wake-up call not to make fun of our unkempt appearance or our confused state or to pester us, but he says these things to realign our perspective with him, to get us walking in his wisdom and valuing him above all things that can take our gaze, the things that we're pursuing. What about God's wisdom? Are you valuing that? To repent, to humble ourselves before him in the fear of the Lord and to walk in his wisdom to put aside the sin because in him, we find riches, honor, and a fountain of life. Oh, that we would value God's wisdom above gold, that there would be a God rush, you know, like a gold rush where people from all over are wanting to, to find that gold in this one spot. How about a God rush where we are just awakened to the goodness of God and his wisdom that he's given us? that we would say, that's where the value is. And I'm not trading it. I'm not trading that wisdom for anything because it is life in Christ. Praise God, Jesus is the truth. He provides atonement. We have strong confidence in him. Let's value him. Let's praise and worship him. Let's pray. Praise you, Father, for your wisdom. 
thank you for how wonderful you are, that the things you have devised and do continually put me in awe. Thank you for your patience as well, your kindness to us to know our weakness and still to reach out to us, not to cast us aside, but to speak to us and say, come, let us reason together. Your sins that are like scarlet, they can be white as snow, that we can have forgiveness and atonement, that our guilt can be washed away and we can be made righteous through faith in Christ, who is wisdom for us. Thank you, Lord, for your wisdom that is far greater value than gold, silver, or rubies. Thank you, Lord, that you have made your wisdom that's above price available to each one who fears you, who trusts you, who waits upon you. And I pray we would walk in your wisdom, Lord, and we would uh, not walk in sin any longer. Lord, the wake-up call, you know why you're waking us up. You know why you are speaking to our hearts and the thing that you want to convey. And so I pray we'd be receptive to you today, that we would seek your face and we'd wait, we would listen, and we'd obey you. Thank you that you are glorious and good. And we can always entrust ourselves now and forever into your loving, gracious hands. In Jesus' name, amen.